Hello, welcome to another episode of Living with Steam, a unique podcast featuring the authentic sounds of railroading in Buffalo and Western New York. The recordings you are about to hear were made between 1948 and 1955 by John Prophet. I'm Aaron Heverin. In this episode, we'll take a closer look at the wire recorder John Prophet used to capture his sound recordings. In John's own words, it's amazing he was able to capture any recordings at all due to the difficulties he had in taking the unit out into the field. And when you hear more about the equipment John used, it will certainly give you a major appreciation for the small digital recorders that people can use today to capture sounds. Can you imagine if John Prophet had an iPhone?
Near the corner of Tonawanda and Niagara Streets in Buffalo, New York, was the New York Central's Tower F, a signal tower used for controlling the movements of trains between the Canadian National Trackage coming from the International Bridge and the New York Central's Niagara Branch going north and south. This area was a haven for rail activity because the International Bridge served as a crossing for trains of the Michigan Central, the Toronto Hamilton and Buffalo, the New York Central, and the Canadian National. The CN owned the trackage coming from Canada and was also responsible for the Black Rock passenger station that stood just off the bridge from Squaw Island, now known as Unity Island. Tower F was a small, wooden, clapboard-styled building and, according to John, served as the traffic cop for this entire area. Railroad traffic was heavy and frequent. Tower F was situated immediately next to the New York Central's Black Rock Freight House, which was located directly on Niagara Street. A large portion of the brick building remains at the location to this day. At the south end of the freight house was the New York Central's small Black Rock passenger station, which served as a ticket window and office only for trains from Niagara Falls to Buffalo. And across the street from the freight station was the stamping plant for Pratt and Letchworth. And you'll be able to hear the stamping process occurring in the background of many of the recordings John made from Tower F. Fortunately for him, John was able to use the electricity supplied by the tower, and he simply held his microphone out of the window facing the tracks. It was 11.30 in the evening, and John captured the last train on the THB for the day, number 382, pulled by Hudson number 5366, just as it arrived from Canada. This train from Toronto was loaded with sleeping cars bound for New York and coach cars for Buffalo. It will eventually stop at Exchange Street and Central Terminal. As the recording began, the train slowly pulled into the Canadian National's Black Rock Station. Unfortunately, John didn't capture the sequence of events that took place just prior to the start of the recording. As each train coming from Canada crossed the International Bridge and onto Squaw Island, before it could run onto the swing bridge which carried the railroad over the Erie Canal and Niagara Street and into Black Rock, the engine had to give a signal to its destination. Three blasts of a whistle meant the train was bound for Buffalo and Exchange Street and finally Central Terminal. After hearing the signal, a switchman from the Black Rock station would throw a switch to position the train on the tracks leading past Tower F and onto the New York Central's Niagara branch heading downtown. After he threw the switch, the switchman would give a signal back to the engineer with his lantern indicating that the switch was thrown and for the engine to pull ahead. As the recording began, the engineer just gave two blasts of his whistle, acknowledging the switchman's signal. After a brief delay with passengers getting on or off at the Black Rock station, the Hudson pulled the train out of the station and wound its way past Tower F. As it gathers speed, you'll hear it whistle for Forest Avenue, which back in 1951 was a grade crossing. Let's recap a little bit. As I mentioned in the very first episode of Living With Steam, prior to 1948, one of the only ways to capture sound or music in a so-called home recording environment was to use a record cutter. There were several manufacturers that produced such a device, one being RecoCut. A record cutter looked very much like a typical phonograph from that period of time. 
and the theory behind the operation is that you'd place a blank acetate disc on the turntable, you would gently drop the recording cutting head on the disc, start the motor, and feed audio into the recording head. Most radio stations and production studios had their own record cutting equipment, but it wasn't truly available to the home market unless you had a lot of money and an equal amount of patience. Although it's not very common, it is possible to find records that were made in a home recording unit. Unfortunately, the sound quality of these homemade records is often very poor, if there's any sound at all. The trouble with recording on many of those home record cutters was that they relied on a small neon bulb to indicate the presence of an audio signal in order for the bulb to light up. Think of them as a very early form of a VU meter. The basic rule of thumb was to test your audio levels into the record cutter by slowly increasing the amount of signal at the input to the unit. And this could be either a radio, a microphone, or another phonograph. You were generally supposed to increase the input levels until your light came on, and then back off the input until the light went out. That was supposed to be your optimum recording level. If you recorded with the light on completely, or in some cases with the light on just a tad, you'd often wind up with a recording that was distorted. That would result in a wasted blank disc. With record cutters, it was all or nothing. You couldn't stop after a few seconds, rewind, and then play back to see if your recording was going to be perfect. Once the recording head started cutting into the blank disc, you were committed. My point to all of this is that many of the records you may find in thrift stores or record shows on the audio disc label have very poor audio because people were afraid of distortion ruining the recordings. But if folks relied on the neon light to tell them that their recordings were going to be good, nine times out of ten, they'd be very disappointed with the results. But you have to remember, folks weren't playing their homemade records back on $2,000 turntables either. So perhaps the technology matched the times. Regardless of the complexities or lack thereof for using a home record cutter, taking one out in the field to operate it remotely was not an easy thing to do. Yes, John and Alan Lomax did it, but that's another podcast.
It was 9.32 in the evening on a warm night in July of 1951, and Toronto Hamilton and Buffalo train number 344 just arrived at the Black Rock station after crossing the International Bridge in Buffalo. The train was pulled by engine 5374, and it waited a bit at the station for passengers to get on or off. And then it slowly pulled away and moved past Tower F, where John Prophet was sitting with his microphone. 344's next stop will be downtown Buffalo at Exchange Street and finally Central Terminal. This will be the second to last train for the evening on the THB. After 344 fades away, New York Central train number 248, the Daily Express between Suspension Bridge and Buffalo, will run past Tower F on its way to Buffalo. As I've said many times before, the train movements that John Prophet captured were in the order they appeared in the New York Central's timetables. However, he did not capture them in real time. For example, train 344 arrived at Black Rock at 9.32 in the evening according to John's notes. Train 248 wasn't scheduled to arrive at Black Rock until 10 minutes after 11, give or take a few. Both trains have been assembled into a continuous sequence here for our purposes. Now here's another interesting note to give you more of an idea to John's eccentric personality. John set out to record the sounds of trains, period. He absolutely hated when anything else got into his recordings at the same time a train went past. So airplanes, people talking, trucks going by, boats in Buffalo Harbor blowing their horns, ambient noises caused by local manufacturing facilities, all of these things ruined his recordings, according to him. In the case of train 248 going past Tower F, a truck is heard on Tonawanda Street on the other side of Tower F. John hated this intrusion on his recording so much, he would simply stop the wire recorder immediately, which of course would cut off whatever spectacular steam train sounds were being recorded. As he and I began reviewing his wires, and I started hearing this behavior more frequently, I asked him why this was such a bother to him. And of course he told me he just wanted to record steam engines and trains. He didn't care about airplanes and trucks. But I remarked that those sounds put the trains he was recording into the context of their surroundings and how it was a shame that he cut them off. Several years later, he started to realize that perhaps stopping the recorder when an airplane flew overhead was not a good thing to do, especially when he started hearing the recordings as full sequences, complete with added ambient sounds as I was editing some of them back in the late 90s. My remixed recordings sounded more like the real experience as far as he was concerned, and he regretted being so stubborn back then. Although magnetic tape had been around in Germany since 1929, Americans weren't aware of its existence until World War II. According to the legend, a member of the Army Signal Corps by the name of John Mullen was assigned to capture and analyze enemy radio equipment. On one particular raid of a German town, Mullen stumbled across what he thought was a radio, but it turned out to be a German magnetophone and he turned it over to the Army for thorough investigation and reverse engineering. The magnetophone, of course, was Germany's magnetic tape recorder. A somewhat humorous story goes with this. Apparently, General Dwight D. Eisenhower wanted to record a message to the German people about the Allies' advances 
and he wanted to use the magnetophone with captured German tape. The tape, however, was not completely erased, so Hitler's voice can be heard along with that of Eisenhower's. Obviously very upset over this, Eisenhower ordered that no more confiscated German tape could be used anywhere, and instead, he gave orders that captured German scientists should get to work immediately on setting up American tape manufacturing facilities. That's the story anyway. Now here's a piece of trivia. Who was one of the first major celebrities to fully embrace magnetic tape, and even went so far as to invest his own money in the production of both tape and the machines to play them on? He also used magnetic tape to record his shows in advance, thus allowing him to make any edits he felt necessary to produce a perfect show. If you said Les Paul, you'd be close. If you said Bing Crosby, you'd be correct. In 1946, the very first wire recorders became commercially available. During World War II, wire recorders were in use by the military, especially by aircraft to record conversations between the air crew and ground stations. After World War II, Companies like Silvertone and Webster Chicago began marketing the first home model of a wire recorder. While some may have been part of a highly expensive audio console, meaning a radio, record player, and wire recorder combo, most of the wire recorders were portable units. During the period of time from 1938 until 1948, John Prophet spent most of his time taking photographs and movies of steam engines and trains. But with the advent of portable audio recording, the tools associated with being a railroad enthusiast jumped up a few notches. I can only guess how John found out about the availability of using a wire recorder. Now, keep in mind, he wasn't the only person in the country who wanted to record the sounds of trains. But it wasn't for everybody. I have to stress that fact. John was very lucky because of his relationship with the New York Central. He was able to go places and get access to locations that 90% of the folks who purchased a wire recorder simply couldn't get to. He was also incredibly stubborn. Regardless of the difficulties, nothing was going to stop him from getting the perfect recording. These facts alone can make John's recordings amazing to listen to. Sometimes I listen to a particular recording and wonder, how did he do that? Even today, the latest and greatest technology tends to be very expensive when it first comes on the market. But as years pass and the latest technology suddenly becomes old technology, you can buy that once expensive item for pennies on the dollar. A good example of this is the CD player. Hundreds of dollars in the late 80s. But now you can buy one for $5 at the Salvation Army. In 1948, wire recorders were relatively expensive. Webster Chicago's basic model, the 78-1, sold in the neighborhood of 8895 in 1950, while their 180-1, which was considered one of their first sturdy portable units, sold for around 14995 in 1948. John's 288-1 sold for close to $200. That's $2,100 in 2020 currency. Also like today, there were many magazines that blasted the latest technologies all over their covers and inside pages. In post-war America, electronics was a huge market. Magazines like Popular Photography, Audio Engineer, Radiocraft, 
and most especially popular electronics, most certainly had articles about making recordings at home with any number of upcoming technologies. Some strange, some available very soon. Back in the 30s and 40s, newsstands were everywhere, even in train stations. You could walk past any newsstand and see the blazing covers of Radiocraft and easily be drawn into whatever electronic wonder was on the cover. Perhaps John saw an issue of any one of the electronics magazines that were wildly popular in post-war America that were all about home recording. Perhaps he saw a wire recorder pictured on the front cover of Radiocraft magazine being touted as the next best thing for taking his love for the steam engine and the trains they pulled to an unimaginable level. More than likely, John learned early on that a wire recorder was the preferred way to go, since a home record cutter could only record about three minutes worth of material at 78 RPM. And it was record once and you're done. A wire, on the other hand, could hold anywhere from 30 minutes to one hour of recorded material. And you could record over any wire if you didn't like what was on it. I'm sure electronic magazines of the day highlighted these key selling points. In 1948, John Prophet purchased a Webster Chicago Model 288-1 portable wire recorder. They're top of the line. The unit was heavy, weighing in at close to 40 or 50 pounds, but it gave John the opportunity to record the trains he loved so much in locations where they truly showed their magnificence. A wire recorder recorded on a wire, a stainless steel wire that was about the size of a human hair. They were sold in spools at lengths to give you 30 or 60 minutes of recording time. John's 288-1 had a built-in amplifier and speaker with a tone control, and most came with a crystal microphone. Fidelity was limited. It had the ability to play back through an external amplifier if you wanted to dub the wire recordings off to something else. Even though the wire recorder was a technological breakthrough for anyone who wanted to capture sound on a home or portable basis, the units were fragile and prone to failure. And it wasn't so much the wire recorder itself that was the problem, because John's 288-1 was built like a tank. It was the wire that was the problem. To the layman who was seeing the unit for the first time, it would be relatively easy to mistake it for a typical quarter-inch magnetic reel-to-reel -reel tape deck of the era. At first glance, there appears to be two hubs, one on the left and one on the right. And between the two, was some sort of a round plastic gizmo that had the Webster Chicago logo on it. The hub on the left was for the supply wire. This is where you place the actual spool of wire for either recording or playing back. The hub on the right side was the take-up side of things. And this reel was semi-permanent on the unit, much like the take-up reel of a magnetic tape deck. To load the machine, you would simply thread the wire from the supply side to the take-up side. But wait, that gizmo I mentioned earlier is actually the playback record head of the wire recorder. When you thread the wire, you had to make sure that the wire ran through a slot in the head. Once that was done and the wire was secured to the take-up reel, you were ready to make a recording. Well, almost. 
There was one very critical piece of mechanical action that had to happen in order for the wire recorder to function properly. As the machine was in operation, the head was supposed to move slowly up and down. This motion was needed to unspool the wire in a continuous helical form so that the wire would never bind in one spot on either the take-up reel during playback or the supply reel when a wire was being rewound. To be honest, before you could even thread the wire through the head, you had to examine the spool of wire and determine where it was actually situated on the spool, if you looked at the spool horizontally. Was the wire in the top, the middle, or the bottom of the spool? And once you made that determination, you manually rotated the take-up reel, which forced the head to move up and down. Basically, you were aligning the head with the position of the wire so that when the machine started moving, it would unwind the wire smoothly and accurately. Misalignment between the head and the supply reel could put too much tension on the wire and break it. Now remember, the wire was about as thin as a human hair. But once everything was aligned and ready to go, once you put the wire recorder into operation, the head would slowly move up and down, accurately threading the wire from one side to the other in perfect cohesion. The bad news is that if the up and down movement of the head ever failed, the wire would simply spool off in one spot on the take-up reel and bind up against itself, forming a snarl that would be impossible to untangle. Now, while this may not be such a big deal while the 288-1 was in playback mode, when the unit was rewinding a spool, the speed at that operation was almost four times to that of playback. If the wire collected in one spot at that tremendous speed, it would bind up tightly against itself and eventually the wire would spew off the reel and all over the unit. What you would have was what looked like piles of steel wool all over the place. Again, it's impossible to untangle and John lost dozens of spectacular recordings due to this catastrophic failure. Even though the mechanics of the head were gear-driven, it was helped along by a spring that put tension on the head and assisted in pulling it downward. If the spring ever broke, which it had in John's case, and if the drive system was covered in dust and old grease that turned into glue, the gears alone would not be strong enough to lower the head. So to get around this, anytime John wanted to play one of his wires back, he had to keep his hand on the playback head to manually push it down in time with the operation of the machine. Now, can you imagine sitting there for an hour with your hand on the playback record head just so that you could listen to one of your reels? Needless to say, this didn't happen often, so John never listened to any of the recordings he made on wire once the 288-1 broke down. In fact, in 1955 or so, he gave up on using a wire recorder completely. He purchased a portable magnetic tape reel-to-reel -reel recorder to continue recording trains of the New York Central, Pennsylvania, Nickel Plate, and others. I have no idea why John never took the unit in to be repaired. Perhaps there just wasn't a place in Buffalo who dealt in the sale or repair of Western Chicago wire recorders by 1955 or later. Or perhaps John simply moved away from the wires entirely and started using magnetic tape, thinking he'd get around to repairing the wire recorder one of these days. Interesting of note, as I started digitizing John's entire collection of wires, I found several that had been sent to him from his friends who were also using wire recorders. They were not only sending train recordings back and forth to each other, 
they were sending audiograms or recorded voice messages to each other. One of the more interesting wires I found was from a gentleman that I just can't identify anywhere in John's notes, but the subject matter is about John and one other friend in the group giving up on using a wire and going over to magnetic tape. The gentleman seems thrown back a bit by John's decision to stop using a wire recorder and he wants to know why he's done it and should all three of them switch over to magnetic tape. Let's listen to part of that discussion. Well, hi, all you nice people. What's going on tonight or today or whatever time it is? I just sitting here uh, listening to a little <laughs> 3506 go through her homework out here in the backyard. Beautiful evening. Wind is all open. Doors open. Well, I did get up and shut the door. The kids are raising cane out here in the front yard, and I didn't want any more interference than necessary. Ma's banging and clanging away over here doing the dishes. And, kind of picking on me a little bit, so maybe we'll get something out of Ma on this tonight, we'll get her in the mood. Now, here's what I want to get off my chest. I've heard so much yelping and yowling about uh, tape recorders, wire recorders, and this and that and the other thing. Uh, I'd like to get something settled before we get in too deep. Are we going to concentrate on tape recorders and do all this with tape? Are we all going to keep our wire recorders, or what are we going to do? I want your opinion, both of you, on uh, the actual facts, and what, what the advantages and the disadvantages are. What is What can you get with the tape recorders you can't get with a wire, and what will the tape recorder do that the wire won't do? Uh, note that John said he's going to take his tape recorder to Buffalo and make his recordings on that. Is the tape recorder just as handy to carry around with you that way, or is the wire still best in that respect? John also made the remark that <clears throat> the tape recorder operates off a capstan. Well, I didn't know that until I went checking back and looking up on some of them. Uh, that would be all right, because you'd get a consistent wire from one end to the other, regardless of the size of your spool. Uh, I had thought some about that until... But I hadn't, uh, I mean, I hadn't thought too much about that until John warned me in this last wire he sent to watch out for that sort of thing because you get a different pitch towards the tail end of your wire if you uh, change the position of it. For that reason, I think I'm going to concentrate on half-hour spools for the time being. Uh, I don't think that way you would get too much of that. But anyhow, I want the facts, the figures, and the whole works, what you plan to do, why you're doing it, all there is to it, because uh, I'm not going to be in a position to own two or three outfits here. Even if I do work for preheater, I have to earn what I make at times, and uh, I don't want to uh, be piled down with 17 different kinds of outfits to cart around over the country if I want to take them with me. As far as I'm concerned, I'm perfectly satisfied with a wire. I uh, like this old machine better every day I use it. But you guys are going to have tape, and are going to keep tape. Let's, uh, let's get together and make up our mind what we're going to do now while there's still time to do it. Otherwise, we're going to be all balled up here. One going to have one thing, one going to have another, and end up by nobody having any fun. 
Listening to this recording is almost a throwback to the debate people were having in the 80s regarding beta or VHS for use in the home environment. Many folks will argue that beta looked better and sounded better, but VHS was the format that caught on and stayed an industry standard. But it's interesting to hear a debate over wire and tape. I'm not sure what the gentleman was referring to when he said that John liked a tape recorder better because it used a capstan. By this, I can only assume that he was referring to the method a tape recorder uses as its transport mechanism. The main drive motor of the unit is attached to a metal shaft, or capstan, that protrudes from the inside of the tape recorder's chassis. The magnetic tape itself is situated between the capstan and a rubber pinch roller in order to advance the tape through the mechanism and maintain a constant speed of the tape, regardless of the size of the spool of tape. John's friend is concerned about there being a difference in speed of the wire recorder once the spool reaches the very end, especially if 60-minute spools of wire are used. However, I've listened to all of John's wires over and over again, and I've never noticed any sort of speed distortion when I've listened to them. I should point out that the drive system of the wire recorder is very similar to that of a tape recorder. The main drive motor of the unit has a similar capstan that makes contact with a rubber idler wheel when the unit is put into play mode. The idler wheel rides up against the take-up reel and this action basically pulls the wire from the supply reel through the playback record head and onto the take-up reel. And don't forget, the drive system for the head to move up and down is also connected to the take-up reel. So maybe John's friend had something there in his concern about maintaining a constant speed. John's wire recorder was not a machine you could fit into your pocket or strap over your shoulder to carry it around with you. It weighed in at close to 40 pounds or more. It also required AC power, meaning you had to plug it into a 117-volt wall outlet in order for it to work. No rechargeable NICAD or lithium-ion batteries on this unit. With this limitation in mind, John had to choose his recording locations very carefully. He told me that he always tried to find a location where he could plug in because the alternative wasn't pleasant. It was inevitable that John would want to make a recording in a spot where there wasn't any power source available. As we heard John mention in the last episode of Living With Steam, in order to make truly portable and off-the-beaten-path recordings, John purchased a power converter to use with the 288-1. This device converted the 6-volt DC power from his car's battery to what he hoped would pass for AC power. In reality, it was more like 60-cycle DC, but it was close enough to give power to the wire recorder, but not without problems. The biggest is that the converter weighed close to 100 pounds, and it used a heavy cable to connect to the wire recorder, which, if you remember, weighed 40 pounds or so. John was a pretty thin and lightweight guy, 
hauling close to 160 pounds into a field to record a passing train made the thrill of the hunt wear off really fast. The other problem with using the converter is that it tended to introduce a horrible 60-cycle hum or buzz into his recordings. And because the converter used a vibrator to generate the AC, there was a constant buzz coming from the unit itself. So you couldn't have the recorder anywhere near the converter because the mic would pick up the noise generated by the converter. Think of trying to make a recording of birds in your backyard, but you set your microphone up within three feet of the air conditioning unit for your house. Boy, those recordings would sound fantastic. But the fact that the converter introduced a 60-cycle hum into the recordings was a main reason why many of his best recordings were ruined because of this technical flaw. John simply had no way of monitoring what was being recorded until he stopped the machine, rewound the wire, and listened to what he hoped would be a good playback. Believe me, filtering that noise out is very difficult, if not impossible. But as I said, John Prophet chose his recording locations very carefully. He was fortunate in that he was an employee of the New York Central Railroad, and because of this, he was given access to most of the facilities in the Western New York area. He recorded from stations, interlocking towers, engine facilities, and even the kitchen of a woman whose home just happened to be very close to railroad tracks. He simply knocked on her door, explained the situation, and asked to plug the wire recorder into an outlet in her kitchen right by the window that faced the railroad tracks. Now that's pretty smooth. Like his photographs, John made his wire recordings for his own personal enjoyment. He traded wires with friends who were located in parts of the country that were using steam engines different from what was running in the Buffalo area. Throughout all of the years that John collected hundreds of images and sound recordings of steam engines, he never once thought he was doing it for prosperity. He never really considered any of the material he captured to be worthwhile to anyone outside of his circle of friends and himself. So you can imagine his surprise when long after the steam engine was gone and most of the railroad companies whose equipment he photographed or recorded were gone as well, that he started receiving letters from companies who produced railfan videos, records, and later compact discs asking if he would be willing to lend his photographs and sound recordings to their projects. Many of his 16mm movies of the New York Central and Pennsylvania railroads were produced into railfan videos in the late 80s. As I mentioned in the first episode of Living With Steam, John's sound recordings from The Wires were a different matter. Even though a scant few of his recordings made it onto a vinyl record or two and later a CD set, John always had to be on hand to babysit the wire recorder anytime some producer wanted to copy off a wire for a project. It's the biggest reason why the bulk of his sound recordings never got anywhere further than his front door. Regardless of the demand for his recordings, the wire recorder wasn't working properly and John never trusted anyone to operate the machine with all of its flaws and not damage any of his irreplaceable wires in the process. Consequently, very few of his vast collection of sound recordings have ever been heard. Until now.
Let's return to the New York Central's Tower F for the last recording we'll hear on this episode. First, train number 351, the Empire State Express, pulled by engine 5362, slowly pulls past Tower F after it had departed Central Terminal earlier. It switches over to the track leading toward the International Bridge. The train will stop at the Canadian National's Black Rock Station and get a load of passengers bound for Detroit. The Empire had arrived at Central Terminal as one big train, but it was split in two with a section bound for Cleveland and one for Detroit. This recording features the Detroit section. As the Empire waits for the highball, a Canadian Pacific train, number 383, pulls past the tower. After the train passes, you'll be able to hear the loud crashing of the stamping operation at the Pratt & Letchworth plant on Tonawanda Street. Next, the main special, a troop train, pulls away from the tower and heads south on the New York Central's Niagara branch. As the train fades into the distance, it whistles for Forest Avenue. Now, many of you who grew up in Buffalo may raise your eyebrows at this fact, but Forest Avenue, along with many other streets that now end at Niagara Street today, actually extended across Niagara, over the Niagara Branch Railroad tracks, and much farther toward the Erie Canal, or in this case, the Erie Barge Canal as it came to be known. Then you'll hear train BN2 pulled by a Fairbanks Morse diesel locomotive speed past the tower. Its horn is barely audible because of the train's incredible speed. BN2 was one of New York Central's pacemaker trains. It was a special freight operation made up entirely of red and gray boxcars and it was billed as the fastest freight service between Buffalo and New York and Buffalo and Boston. The train is coming from Niagara Falls and is heading to New York. And finally, train number 366 pulled by Pacific Class Locomotive 4749 pulls away from the freight station with only two cars in tow. It heads south and whistles for Forest Avenue. This is perhaps my absolute favorite recording of John's because it's one that he and I worked on together. After I had repaired his wire recorder, we spent hours sitting at my kitchen table listening to dozens of his wires for an upcoming CD set I was hoping to produce of his best recordings. As we went through his notes, he picked out a fantastic sequence of events that he captured at Tower F. His memory of the trains that passed the tower was incredible. He was describing to me every detail about the steam engines, the cars, flat spots on some of the wheels of the cars, what some passengers were doing, and even the weather. He was remembering these recordings like he made them yesterday. As I wrote down pages of notes during our conversation, I realized that I wanted to make every attempt to reassemble the sequences he recorded as realistically as possible. It was 1997, and I was working at a local television station at the time. During my off hours, I used the station's 16-track recorder, two digital audio tape machines, two CD players, and John's wire recorder all routed through a 48-track mixing console. I created simulated stereo of John's recordings, I added ambient noise of the city of Buffalo that I had recorded at the intersection of Tonawanda and Niagara Streets. I added cars and truck sounds. I even added a thunderstorm because John said it was raining pretty heavily when he made these Tower F recordings on that day. It took me weeks to put this one recording together and I had a ball doing it. Only, after it was all finished, 
An enormous fear gripped me by the throat and wouldn't let go. I suddenly had the feeling that I had taken the recording way too far, like I had put too much technology into remastering John's original recording. I knew how much of a purist John was and how he hated it if an airplane flew overhead while he was making a recording or if a truck went by. I felt like he was going to hate what I had done to this particular Tower F recording. After all, he personally chose these Tower F recordings for the CD. He told me what order he wanted each of the trains to appear in the sequence. What I had done was created the disco mix of something that perhaps didn't need remixing. After I had finished the remaster, I invited John over to hear it. I'm not ashamed to tell you that I was shaking a bit when I played it for him as we sat in my living room. After the 15-minute track had finished playing, John sat on my couch just staring at my stereo. And then he turned to me kind of slow and smiled. In a choked up voice, he said, Yes, that's it. That's exactly how it was.
been listening to Living With Steam, featuring the authentic sounds of railroading in Buffalo and Western New York. This program was written and produced by me, Aaron Heverin, and all of the original sound recordings heard in the program were made in the field by John Prophet from 1948 to 1955. For additional content, including pictures to accompany the recordings you heard, additional historical information, and supplemental videos, please visit Living With Steam on Facebook. Just head over to facebook.com forward slash living with steam, all one word. And while you're on the page, feel free to ask any questions you may have about the program and its content. I'd certainly appreciate your feedback as well. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.